In therapy and in music, the baseline informs where we go to next. This is the show that examines the present state of music therapy and asks, where to from here? Welcome to Baselines with Joe Thompson. This podcast was made on the lands of the Darug people. Hello, everyone. My guest on the podcast today is Matthew Braden. Matthew is a registered music therapist and has worked with children and adults of all ages in allied health centers, private practice, school, and home settings. Matthew focuses on strengths-based approaches to intervention and has a particular interest in ecological approaches to therapeutic work, including the involvement of families. His PhD investigated the applicability of using figure notes in music therapy by children with autism and their families. Matthew also works as a research officer and casual academic at Western Sydney University and believes strongly in the need for integration of practice and research. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. So would you mind just talking through some of the key findings from your PhD and the research associated with it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I was investigating, uh, I was working with the kids with autism uh, and uh, they were the participants and I was looking at the effectiveness of figure notes, which is a, uh, a notation system, uh, a particular a specialised notation system uh, adapted um uh, using uh, colours and shapes um, in a, a very visual way, and also um, importantly, representing notes uh, in, a, in a geometrically uh, accurate way. In other words, the longer the note, the longer the actual symbol is. And uh, this uh, has been what's well, been hypothesised, and my research has. Uh, definitely found that uh, it is particularly effective with kids with autism because they are very visual, often very visual uh, learners, and um, and they were able to to use it um, to uh, in their music making um, and uh, very successfully, and uh, and it, it produced a number of positive outcomes in the areas of social interaction and uh, self concept. Uh, as well as uh, in development of their musical skills, as it turned out, there was there was a, a interesting uh, correlation between, or should I say, association, to use the correct research term, between the development of the musical skills and improvements in the social interaction and the the self concept. And I know we're getting into the weeds a bit here, but I'm interested to know how you measured the social skills in the self Yes, yes. So I, I used a um, measurement tool uh, which has been used in psychology for self-concept. Uh, and that was, um, uh, yeah, that was that was a you know, validated tool there. Um, with uh, social interaction, it was a little more difficult. Um, in the end, we had to we had to rely on. So we we, we used uh, observer ratings. Um, so myself and also my supervisors uh, would rate the video that we took, video footage of the sessions, and uh, rate the participants on several areas of self concept. Sorry, um, social interaction, and. Um, and try and maintain a consistency there, but it was it was a, a, a essentially a 
qualitative measure because we weren't actually measuring quantitatively any aspects of um, social interaction obviously is by definition it has to be a somewhat um, yeah uh, qualitative term because it's not something that you can measure someone's you know temperature or something like that it, it's a very much a measure I mean we, we, we use things like a number of words that they used in a, in a given minute that 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 kind of thing but essentially it was a was an observational measure so this is social skills with other uh, participants there was there was multiple children with autism mm-hmm. using this tool at the same time so yeah originally we were going to do the um haze with individuals and if haze at the school with the school groups um and uh, but then what happened is that we we became my supervisors and i i should say became um uh, interested in the what what was happening is particularly in the individual sections with uh, the the parents and the siblings of these kids with autism and how involved they were in the sessions and so we we thought okay well let's run another phase actively involving the the parents and siblings in the in the work. And uh, that actually proved to be probably the most interesting phase of all. Um, also, by then, I was getting getting good at it. But particularly, I should say, and this is another aspect of research, is that it, it's never over. You know, so the, one of the outcomes was, okay, so we're, we're, we, there were some interesting things going on here. Um, th- there should be more research on this. <laughs> so, you know, really, like if you read any re- research article, any decent research article, it's always going to say something like, yeah, this, you know, these, well, obviously, limitations of every research research project but also you know where's this leading what next you know you've got to open the door for yourself and for others to to use the research that's in this this particular uh, project and use it in others um, because that's the way that research works it just what everything one thing builds on another so i know you did just touch on it but would you mind talking a little bit more in depth about those those final or those late late findings and the implications for those? One of the things that, that I found, honestly, was that uh, actually the kids with autism were often better than their siblings or their parents at in terms of better. We're, now we're looking at the music skills, I guess, as specifically. But not only that, it was also in their, in their, in their interactions and in the way they generally uh, approached the work i think and the hypothesis or the, the the interpretation that we put on there was that it was um something to do with the fact that they when they when they were able to find something that they are, are confident and competent with and had and um you know the 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 so-called issues and problems disappeared and they became you know they 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 interacted fine and they were comfortable doing it and they did really well so um, I think this is something that I'd really like to unpack further. I've had several conversations with autism researchers actually about this, and they say, yeah, well, I mean, this is the kind of thing that we're heading towards now, that we're looking at, you know, strength-based approaches. And, you know, so, so it's not as if we're, we're trying to fix anything here. We're, we're actually looking at what we're, you know, what can be, what, what, what can be done to enable everyone to be able to, to you know, be good at something and to feel feel comfortable and to to uh, uh, and also it's kind of like looking for a window or a door uh, that enables an individual to be able to to live and interact with others um in in a way which is meaningful because not you know we're living in an era of 
um, now we're, we're finally realizing that, that, you know, there's not just one way of doing things. <laughs> I suppose we've always been tending, but now it just seems there are, we're really, really getting that idea. And I think in the autism world, that is definitely there. Yeah, that's wonderful. So let's talk about some of the implications of this research for, let's start with the practice more broadly. Um, is there anything that you can definitively say is, is uh, a good learning point for practitioners as, as a result of your research? Um, well, yes, there were certainly some, some implications for practice. Um, the most obvious one, I guess, is that uh, figure notes is a useful tool <laughs> that could be used by, by others in other situations. Um, and I think also in the, in the connecting of musical development with emotional and social development, I think this is an area that really, really needs more research, um, looking into, you know, the, because I think we tend to isolate things like musical skills and say, well, they don't relate to anything else. They're just musical skills and, you know, but actually, uh, you know, there's obviously <laughs> there, there, there is something that a person uses and can use in, in whatever ways they like. And also the, the, the general um, way in which, of course, the human being tends to use things from one domain uh, in and one or rather one domain affects other domains. So um, I think this is something that's that's also very interesting and, and relevant. I'm very interested to hear. So I know that you're a therapist who uses a lot of improvisation and instrumental play in your practice. I, correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I think that's fair to say. Um, and having such an improvisational approach um, and then going and researching figure notes, which is naturally a little bit more structured and a little bit more um, directive. Um, yeah, I wonder how those two things interplay in and whether in your mind they are different things or whether they're interrelated. interrelated. So if, if you're reproducing the music of someone else um, or even your, your own music from another time, uh, essentially, you know, you, you are th – that is in your brain – um, and it, it, it goes in there, and for most people, I think, or everyone to some extent, um, it, it is retained. It becomes something in you. You know, so you think about all the songs you've ever heard, um, all, the, all the melodies, all the things you've either ever listened to or played. You know, they're all in there, particularly, obviously, the ones that, are, that, are, that you like and you listen to a lot. So, and then if you're asked to improvise, these these improvisation ideas don't come from nowhere. They they come from what's in you already, <laughs> you know. And therefore, you know, by implication, um, all of the music that you've ever heard. So um, improvise. I think we we sometimes we have a wrong idea about what improvisation is. We think it's just making something up, you know, on the spot out of thin air. And whilst, yes, I mean, to some extent that is true, of course, you know, in a deeper sense or in a sense of like what you, what's actually going on neurologically um, and emotionally, um, there there is, you know, a huge association between the music that you've already absorbed and the music that you are now producing as an improviser. And I think we, we always need to remember that. We, we need to remember that, and that therefore makes a you know very very strong connection between improvisation and other forms of music making. 
Um, and then the the other uh, aspect of that then is uh, regarding what I was doing. So working with the, the figure notes is that um, we actually use figure notes in an improvisational way for for certain aspects of the of the of the, the sessions, uh, particularly with the individuals and the groups. Um, we were doing that. Um, actually, even in the family sessions, we did that. So, an example is one one thing we we're doing. I was doing with the um, the school groups is you know we were we were actually sitting there and I had this big whiteboard that they're all looking at and I had the figure notes symbols on magnets and so we had a whole bunch of magnets spread out all over the floor and the kids were all gathered around in a circle and we would make up melodies so the kids would each have they'd all have their xylophones so they and their, their clock and spiels rather or clock and spiels or xylophones or chime bars um, and they would uh, uh so they knew what the note notes were um and what we would do is that we would uh well I, I, they would then in turn or one at a time or maybe one person doing it all the for one line, they just you know we we were very flexible, but essentially what they did is they they would make up the tune by by placing the magnets in a certain order along the whiteboard, and um and they would either do that based on uh, for the younger kids actually often it was just really they just used to make it up just decide okay these colors look good together you know it wasn't really music it didn't come from a musical idea but the idea is to get them interested in in doing this and then later on and for the old kids uh, right from the beginning what they would do is they would you know make up a tune and then work out what the the, the notes when the you know the symbols that they needed to then make up the tune and then the, the really cool thing was then, then uh, they would be asking each other to play the melody that they just made up. So, you know, one kid would make up a melody, then he'd point to someone and say, you play that, <laughs> and the other person would play it. So this was a, a, a wonderful aspect of, uh, you know, it was really like it really um, – their social interaction scores went way up when we did this <laughs> because they were, they were really interacting then. Wonderful. I've been reading in your bio that um, you have a strong belief that there's a need for integration of practice and research within music therapy. Could you talk a little bit about what led you to that belief and that realisation? Well, you see, I became a music therapist many, many years before I actually began to do my PhD. Um, so I was, I was working in, in various settings and, you know, living and, you know, doing the things that 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 you know, living life essentially, and so I and I always told myself that research is you know, I, I people all the way along, you know, people I'd meet people and say, oh, why don't you get into research? What do you do? And I'd always say, well, sure, it sounds like a great idea, but I'm waiting till I can till I find something that I actually want to research, until <laughs> something I want to find out about. But I was I was coming at it as a practitioner rather than a researcher you know i'm um i'm certainly not a not a professional researcher and i never want to be only a researcher this is the thing so i guess in in myself i, I always want to balance the I, I want to be a practitioner or i am a practitioner and i but i also want to do research and i can see how in a bigger sense in a general professional sense why you know in the wider profession how important 
important this is. Um, and so from that point of view, it, you know, it's it's actually should be a, a part of every professional endeavor. You know, every everything we do, we need to be research based. Um, and when we talk about evidence based, you know, that's the same thing essentially. And we say, you know, we're you know, music therapy it needs to be an evidence based. Uh, Profession. Um, that's exactly. That's, that's essentially saying we need to be a, a research-based profession. We need to base our, our our work on what what people have found out. This is not easy. It's it's not easy in a in a practical sense. Obviously, you know there is only a certain amount of hours in the day. But but then also it's like um, how how overall it's integrated also. So there's a personal aspect to this need for integration, and then there's also the overarching kind of in which it's done at a at a uh, professional or industry level. Yeah, I think we often have the assumption that the researchers start and then the practitioners take from the researchers and put it into their practice. But that's probably a very black and white view that really the practitioners need to contribute what they're finding in a anecdotal sense or um, on a smaller scale, and there'd be back more of a back and forth. Is that the sort of thing that you're describing? I, I have I have insights all the time. You know, when I'm, it's not even just about insights. It's just like seeing, okay, so this client is behaving in a certain way. You know, why or why does this thing work? Why does you know? So it it happens all the time. I'm convinced of it. You know, we 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 could all of us who are working in music therapy. Um, we, we would we would have a million research questions that we could actually ask and could would be worthy of research yeah so I think certainly yeah back to what you said like about the the, the, the thing about the dis, the difference between the re, between being a researcher and being a being a, a practitioner um I mean not, not to say that that isn't I mean, of course, there will always be some people who only want to do research. There are only always want to be people who only do practice. So it's not as if. So I guess in that in that way, um, it's like okay. So it's it's about how we actually meet, how we can more effectively. Uh, okay, now I'm going to use some research words now. Um, how we how how research impact and engagement can can be facilitated, <laughs> and then for on the other side for for. Uh, practitioners how we can actually really use evidence-based uh how we can really be evidence-based practitioners so it sounds like implicit in what you're saying there's the possibility that practitioners can become i I don't know either disengaged or just yeah not really take research uh not really make use of research well um is that when people just stop reading articles and things like that or well we just don't have the time do we you know like i don't have time to sit around reading a million research articles i've got to get out there and work and you know i've got these clients waiting for me yeah (laughs) Uh, you know i mean that's that's a reality isn't it i mean really you know so i think this this is the one the number one thing is simply that we just don't have the time to sit around reading a whole bunch of articles um now this is where we get into things like uh, research skills, mm. and um, I think a really important aspect of research skills is not only being able to be able to do research, but actually being able to work out how to understand, how to read, how where yeah. to go for yeah. for looking up research, and then how to uh, how to 
read it and understand it and make sense of it in a in an efficient and productive way. Yes. So practitioners need to become more research literate, even if they're not going to go and do a PhD or anything like that. I, I think yeah. so. Yes, yeah. I think this is beholden on all of mm. us. Yeah. And I suppose then there's a particular skill too for the practitioner to not just be literate and understand the research, but then see its relevance to their practice. I can see that being actually quite a challenge yes. as well. Yeah, obviously. I mean, this is this is a, a big aspect. But, I mean, that, again, it's part of the, the literacy. It's part of the interpreting of of research. You know, you've got to say, okay, so what is this – how is this – what is this – Telling me, or how how can this inform my work? And I think sometimes we're a bit lazy. We we say, oh well, it's different. You know, it's a different situation. Therefore, it isn't relevant. And what we should actually be saying is, well, what are the outcomes of this research? What are the implications that the researcher has identified, and can I identify any more implications? And then what can, what can I learn? And to be able to Filter quickly, I suppose, in in the reality of a working practice load. Be able to see a journal title and say, "Yep, that's something I need to read quickly," or or not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, things like you know the ab- abstract. That's the whole point of having an abstract is that we should be able to then read that and work out, okay, so is this article going to be relevant? You know, and that 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 kind of thing. Yeah. So I wonder if we speak a little bit more broadly now. Is there any areas of research within music therapy that you think are going to be really pivotal um, in the next few years for music therapy, something that we really need to look at exploring or something that's really going to be shaping our discipline in a significant way? We are going through an exponential growth at the moment in two things, actually. One of the things is, is really obvious. One of them is the digital revolution. Using using whatever digital tool are available um, to enhance our practice, and this is something that's going. To, you know, when we're, I won't, I won't say when, but <laughs> whenever uh, we are, we are, you know, back in a situation where we can just, you know, schedule anything we like face to face without needing to worry about anything, um, then uh, you know, we, uh, it, we will still have these digital tools, and I think there will be people that will still want to use them. The other. The other thing, and this this goes back to the thing I was thinking that just uh, was was part of the, my my thinking from years ago, is that the the way in which uh, we can now understand actually at a molecular level what's going on in our bodies and particularly in our brains. Um, this is something that uh, that. Well, A, we shouldn't be scared of. I know a lot of people, as soon as you mention that, they go, oh, no, no, particularly music therapists, uh, because, you know, we, we, we've got more practical things. But I think, you know, if you, if you think, if really, when you're looking at um, any aspect of research around music therapy, essentially what we're looking at is we're, we're always asking kind of either implicitly or explicitly, what is actually going on in this person? You know what what's happening for them. Um, if we're looking at you know whether we're looking at the efficacy of a certain intervention, or we're looking at you know the, why they re- reacted in the way that they did, or you know any aspect of of what it what of the therapeutic 
process, essentially. It, it boils down to, you know, what's going on? What's going on for them? And what's going on inside? And I think now we, we, um, we're at the point where we can just do so much. Um, we can learn so much. Do you have a go-to or favourite therapy song that you like to use in your practice? Therapy song. Okay. Well, my favourite song is Goodbye. Now, having said that, there are several Goodbye songs that I use, so I don't have only one. But I love Goodbye songs. <laughs> is that is that wrong to say that? Everyone feels safe in a Goodbye song. If you could go back and give yourself advice as a student RMT, what would you say to yourself? I think I would have told myself to just stop doubting yourself and stop, stop. Just, I mean, there were there were times when I was doing my music therapy training when I was almost ready to just walk away. I, I just, oh, I just, I thought, no, this isn't for me. I can't do this, um, you know. Duh. And I made up all these reasons why I. I, I couldn't do it. And I just say to myself now, just just shut up. Just just do the work. Just, you know, because you're only – you're doing the course. You're not supposed to be a confident music therapist yet. You're learning. So, yeah, that's what I'd say. Yeah, just, just get on with it. What do you find most rewarding as a music therapist? What do you find the best thing about our discipline? Yeah, I think, I think it, it all comes down to um, – it comes comes down to the to the to the way in which in music therapy you can use music to help use music to help people and help situations well Ma- matthew thank you so much for your time i really appreciate all your insights and and sharing with me today so thank you oh you're very welcome joe and thank you for your interest Thank you for listening to Baselines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit follow and leave a rating and a review. My single purpose for making this podcast is that it helps us, the music therapists of today, to think clearly and carefully about what we do. I hope today's episode has given you something valuable to consider for your work and your practice.